The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I received a text from a young man who has been struggling with sin. He leaves his sin and then he dives back into it, time after time after time. He walks with an extremely guilty conscience. He is oppressed by his sin. He sent me a text, 10.09 p.m. last night. The text simply said, I just don't know how to give myself to Jesus. I quickly prayed, and I returned a text message to him. My message simply said, Words have meaning, only when they are connected to actions. And he wrote back a minute later, My words are meaningless and empty. He's finally becoming a bit more honest. You see, sin exists in the soul of a person after two forms. First, in guilt. Guilt requires forgiveness. Guilt requires pardon. Secondly, sin exists in the soul in the form of pollution. This pollution requires cleansing. Very few people are pardoned because they do not agree with God about their need. They don't agree with God about their sin. And very few are cleansed or sanctified because they will not end their life of self. There's a passage of Scripture, a parable, found in the book of Matthew. Matthew 21, I'll begin with verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. It was probably a hot day. He probably had some other things he wanted to do, and frankly, he felt like the servant should do that work. Probably had a sense of entitlement. This is not the way I want to spend my day. Forget it. I'm not going. Well, then the father went to the other son, and he said the same thing. And this son answered, I will, sir but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? And they all answered, The first. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. I've been discipling a young man from a Hindu background. He came into the faith 
with eyes wide open, wanting to know what he could do to get rid of his sin. And as I shared the gospel with him, he very quickly, although with much argument, began to put into practice the very things that God had asked him to put into practice. In other words, he turned from his sin. Now, I have to tell you, he would call me on the telephone and he would describe the club and the atmosphere at the club. He would describe the the behavior of himself and others in the dancing, the grinding. And he would say to me, Pastor, I love going there. It satisfies something inside of me. I feel at home there. And so I said to him, but tell me, is it sleazy? And his answer was, yes, it is sleazy. And I said, well, if you want to follow Jesus, you cannot go to sleazy places and you cannot practice wickedness. You cannot go to the strip club. You cannot go to the erotic massage. God calls you to walk clean. And I could hear this young man going, Oh, oh, groaning, groaning under the call to leave his sin. And as we talked and we prayed together, he would get the victory. And he would say, All right, Pastor, I'm going to walk clean with Jesus. I want Jesus. Well, he would call later and he would have questions about why is God unfair to me and and why don't I have what some pagan people have? Why don't I have the wife and the money and the lifestyle that pagan people have? It's unfair. I've never been treated fairly. So we had to speak about these matters. And, and as the sin of his heart was uncovered, with groaning, he would turn from his sin. And this past Sunday, he stood up at the National Prayer Chapel. And he said, I want to give a testimony. I want to tell you that Jesus has done so much for me. And then he began to describe what Jesus has done for him. There was light on his face. There was glory in his countenance. As he talked about what Jesus has done for him in delivering him financially and from the power of darkness. Now it's clear in this parable that one man says, I will not go, but then he goes. And one man says he will go, but does not go, which pleased the Father. Well, God is about whether or not you will do what he asks you to do. Will you do as this young man that I've just spoken of, work his way through until he's able to submit and surrender to Jesus Christ. Now I know some who simply say, I love Jesus with all of my heart, but then not walk in obedience, but believe a false teaching that says, God is going to save everyone who loves Jesus. And so, I can walk in my sin, but I'm still saved. Well, what are you saved from? 
Jesus speaks further about this. Again, chapter 21 of the book of Matthew, verse 42. Have you never read the scriptures? Jesus said to them, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Literally in the Greek, and it's translated thus in the King James Version, He upon whom it falls will be ground to powder. So Jesus opens for us two opportunities. One, to fall on the stone, Jesus, and be broken, choosing to be no longer willing to walk in my rebellion and my sin, choosing to be set free, or choosing to continue in my wickedness until that great day of judgment when my life is destroyed. Now, words have meaning, but they only have meaning if they are connected to actions that are in accord with the word that we have spoken. And the great struggle we have today is that we think in our culture that we can say whatever we feel and then believe because we feel that, that it must be truth. But truth is not based on what we feel. Truth is not based on what we think. I've thought many times that I knew what was true, only to be proven wrong. Many times I have felt I was right, but I was wrong. Truth is not established by feelings. And truth is not established by what I say. Truth is outside of me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, truth is infinite, and I am finite. In other words, when Jesus speaks to us, and we choose to be sentimental and excuse our sin, and say, I feel that Jesus is going to save me, even though I continue to walk in my wickedness, we have been utterly deceived. And we will be cast out into outer darkness. It is vital that we begin to connect the reality of our words with our actions. In the first part of this parable that I've shared of the two sons, the first man says, I will not go. And then he goes. His words were cheap. They were not connected to the reality of what he was going to do. The second son says, Yes, sir, I'll be happy to go. But then he does not go. Again, his words are out of sync with his actions. As we come to Jesus and we recognize the reality of sin as it exists in our soul, there must come a unity between the words we speak and the actions we perform. And if there is not integrity between those two, our words will be meaningless and our feelings will be meaningless. Don't comfort yourself with your words and don't comfort yourself with your feelings. Don't become permissive 
and accommodating because we serve a God who is a holy God, a righteous God, a God who makes a man tremble before him and fall on his face when he even begins to be in his presence. We don't serve a God who is swayed by his emotions. He has emotions. He is a person. But he is not swayed or controlled by his emotions. He is swayed and controlled by the truth. And he is the truth. Now there's another passage we need to look at. In this passage we find in John, the 15th chapter, that Jesus is speaking about abiding in Him, about remaining in Him. And a time came in my development as a Christian that I began to ask, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? And then I had to ask the next question, where do I abide? And of course, the word in the, in the Greek can also mean to stay in or to remain in. So the question is, what do I remain in? What do I abide in? Well, some abide and remain in their professional sports. Some people think about everything in the world. If I could look into your mind for a moment and I could see what you spend your time thinking about, I would know exactly where you abide. You abide in what you think about. If you constantly are watching movies, what kind of movies are you watching? Are you watching violent movies? Then there is a part of your soul that is caught in the wickedness of violence and you abide in it. Or you may not acted out but you have a violent soul some of you abide in your work in your earnest desire to seek riches some of you abide in your shopping some of you abide in your refrigerator all you can think about is the next meal all you can be consumed with is the gourmet food you desire. You abide in your food. For some it's fashion. For some it's accomplishments. What is it that you think about? That's where you abide. Jesus speaking about this issue in verse 9 this is John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain or abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father, his Father, my Father's commands, and remain in His love. I told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. If you do what I command. This theme is played over and over through the scriptures. It's a very common theme. It's a theme that talks about the reality of your words and your actions. 
my great cry to you is to examine carefully what you say and then examine carefully what you do and ask yourself the question, is there a reality, is there a connection, is there a truth between what I say and what I do? Or is there a disjointed place between what you say and what you do? I know that if there is not a unity in what you say and what you do, that there's very little opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. If you look again in the book of Matthew, Matthew 7, Matthew 7, Jesus begins to close out the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to read a part for you. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the suffering gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small, moaning, is the gate, and narrow, or suffering, the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, watch out for pastors who are going to come to you teaching you things that are not true. They're going to be dressed in sheep's clothing. They're going to look and sound and act like they're Christians. One of the most common examples that I could find of that is a book called The Purpose Driven Church. That is a book, a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. And many churches have been destroyed and deceived by this wicked book. Because in reality... It is humanism that is being taught and lifted up. And if you look at the scriptures, they're taken out of context. And they are usually taken from modern versions that are not translations, but paraphrases. In other words, this man who wrote the Purpose Driven Church has taken every opportunity to disguise his humanism with a thin veneer of calling it Christian. That's what's being spoken of here. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Another example in the modern church is a mega church, Joel Olstein's church, where the teaching is that you don't come to church for Jesus. You come for yourself. Because by going to church and listening to these positive messages, you can feel better about you. And you can begin to believe that God loves you unconditionally. Well, obviously, if God had unconditional love, there would be no hell. There would be no punishment for sin. So, men like Joel Osteen come teaching a smiling gospel that is no gospel at all. He's one of those last-day false prophets who comes in sheep's clothing, but is a wolf to devour you. Verse 18, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Well, what is the fruit? The fruit is innocence. It is righteousness. It is giving of oneself in complete submission to Jesus Christ. It is giving oneself entirely to the work of the kingdom of God. It is wholehearted obedience to Jesus Christ. It is then bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of a life is righteousness that comes by way of Jesus Christ as a free gift. But it's real righteousness. It's not declared righteous. It's made righteous. And then Jesus speaks these terrifying words in context. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I could add, didn't we build a great church? Didn't we win many people to your kingdom? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer, or you lawless one, you rebellious one. Away from me. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat upon that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, both of these men build a house, and both houses look very much alike. There's just really one difference. One man builds his house on a solid foundation, on the rock. The other man builds his house without a foundation, and in pleasant weather you cannot tell that it does not have that rock foundation. Both men had the storm come against them. The wind, the rain... The storm came against both men's homes. But the one built on the rock stood, and the one built on sand collapsed because it had no foundation. Well, what was Jesus saying? He was saying that there are men who will say, I love Jesus, and I believe I'm going to be saved. They're going to say, I believe Everything Jesus has said. But they will not put it into practice. They go about their lives and they are flooded with guilt. And they need pardon. They need forgiveness. but they have not yet agreed with God about their sin. Until we're willing to come into the full agreement with a holy and righteous God, until we're willing to recognize the utter depths of depravity in our soul, until we're willing to face the reality of our spiritual condition, of our lukewarmness, 
of our cold-heartedness until we are willing to look with reality at where we abide and turn from these sins. We cannot have our guilt removed. I spoke with a young person yesterday guilty of being involved in sexual sin. And this young person said, I feel so utterly guilty. I feel so stupid. I feel so wrong. I feel so dirty. And so her answer is to punish herself. But there's no peace in self-punishment. There's no peace in beating ourselves up. There is no joy. There is no peace. There is no life in castigating ourselves and condemning ourselves. No, instead, I said to this young person, you need to come into full agreement with Jesus regarding what your sin is. And then you must confess it. You must determine to never go back to it. And Jesus will pardon you. He will forgive you. Now, this young person became involved in this sexual sin because of pollution in her heart and in her soul. A gray zone, a fog, a lust for pleasure, a lust to be loved. This pollution has to be removed from this young person's heart and soul. And again, it will not happen until they're willing to give up their life and receive the life of Jesus Christ. Many that I speak with desire to keep their life and simply have it improved. And many that I talk with describe how painful it is to have their sin in their heart, the guilt that burdens them so heavily, and yet unwilling to renounce their life, to renounce their ambition, to renounce their expectations, unwilling to give up their life and surrender to Jesus Christ. Well, there is no cleansing of the pollution of the soul until the soul is utterly given over to Jesus Christ. Do you see why I'm spending so much time today talking about this amazing reality that we must, in literal terms, have our words agree with our actions. So do your words and your actions agree? And of course, as I speak with people, one of the most common things I hear, people say, I'm working on my sin, but I've been unsuccessful in dealing with it. So God cannot condemn me because He knows that I'm doing my best. God doesn't call us to do our best. I want to turn back. There's a passage of Scripture that I find very interesting around this issue. Let me see if I can find it for you quickly. Yes, here it is. 
Matthew, the 18th chapter, verse 7. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Well, this is very startling to our Western ears. But literally, Jesus is saying, you deal with sin by amputation. You deal with sin by amputation. You don't nurse it. You don't work on it. You cut it off. And it's the blood of Jesus that gives us the power to cut it off. And if a man says to me, Pastor, I've tried to cut it off and I can't, then it takes us to a deeper level where we have to say, the reason you can't cut your sin off is because you still own your life. Now, Jesus is not wanting us to be crippled. He's not wanting us to be blind. He's speaking in this straightforward manner that we would understand that a man would be better off to have his hand cut off than to continue to use it for wickedness because a judgment day is coming and he is a righteous and holy God. And we would do better to come before that judgment bar with our arm cut off, our hand cut off, than to come before Him and be cast into hell for the sin committed with our actions. Pardon me. What I want you to see out of this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is radically connecting salvation and actions. Jesus does not connect words and feelings with being saved unless the actions accompany the words and the feelings that we speak and that we have. Jesus is very serious about sin. He is not going to play games with us. He is very serious about it. And I come today asking you the question, is there unity between your words and your actions? Is there unity between your word and your action? Are you willing to deal seriously with an upfront uncovering of the depths of your heart to come into unity with the words and actions of Jesus. This is Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I thank you for listening today. Is there a unity between your words and your actions? Do you recognize the difference in your life? Let me give you just some information regarding National Prayer Chapel. We meet every Sunday at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. You're welcome to come and visit with us. We would love to have you come and I would love to meet you personally. So come to the All Saints Anglican Church, 12 o'clock noon on Sunday. Our address, 14851 
Gideon Drive, 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Now I also would like to give you our mailing address and I can't tell you how utterly <clears throat> pardon me how utterly grateful I am for the many of you who have contributed that this broadcast could be on the air. I'm grateful that you contribute because it is ministering to your heart. I'm also grateful that you are giving because you have a heart for Washington, D.C. in revival. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. You have partnered with me in the work of the gospel. I don't come selling things. I don't come selling CDs and books and all kinds. No, I believe that the work of the gospel should be supported by free will offerings and by tithe. So I'm grateful that you participate by giving free will offerings and, and many of you send tithe. I thank you for that. Let me give you our mailing address. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346. That's Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And thank each one of you who made pledges for last month. Most of those pledges are in, not all, but most. I'll be looking for those this week. And I thank you. My brothers and sisters, I have a dear brother in Boonesboro, Maryland, who listens. He has been so utterly faithful before Jesus. I have several families up the Baltimore direction. And down in... Virginia. I just, some in Washington, D.C., thank you. Thank you, thank you. That mailing address again is Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And let's take a phone call. Hello, Warren, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good. What was your uh, question? Uh, Pastor, did you just announce my name over the radio? No, I didn't. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, Pastor, this is oh. my question. Yes, um, I I called you Warren, so only your first name. Only my first name. Oh, no. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not sure if I can say what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. If If you were attending a church, and um, you love the pastor, but then you discover that he's maybe a, a wolf. And, um, of course, before when you did, you know, attend the church and you loved him, you prayed for success. And when you discover that, do you, do you change your prayers or do you not pray at all? Or how do you handle that? You run. Well, say you say you already ran. But do you do you continue to pray for this person that you used to care for and love, or do you just you run and then you cut off everything completely? Warren, you pray for that man. You okay, cry you out pray? to the Lord. Do your prayers change from what you used to pray? Yes. Okay. Now, now instead of blessing, you pray, Lord, bring about whatever circumstances are necessary to uncover this man's heart that you could touch him and heal him and turn him from this wickedness. Yes. Now, is that something you pray continuously? Or Absolutely. Time when you, huh? you, pray it, you pray it until the Holy Spirit tells you, don't pray for him anymore. Or until the Holy Spirit says, I've heard you and it's done. Now stand in faith and watch what I'm going to do in this man's life. One thing is for sure, 
God loves him. Yeah, yeah. And God wants to redeem him. Yeah. And so if he can use your prayers to open the way for his move in this pastor's heart, praise God, the man has been redeemed. Okay. So I pray until either the Lord says it's done or until he says no and don't ask me anymore. Very good. I have I, minutes. I have one. Go ahead. I have one other question. Sure. Um, now I know the scriptures say that we pray for we are to pray for our enemies, right? Yes. Do you pray for God's enemies also? Absolutely. Okay. Is it like the same thing? To me, it's the same thing. If I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, remember the Apostle Paul in Galatians said, "I am crucified with Christ." Remember that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're you're called to be filled with with Jesus, so your enemies are Jesus' enemies. Okay. Because see, I, I thought before that uh, my enemies might not know their condition, but those that are enemies of God, they some just don't want. You know, they just turn from God. They know what they're doing. You know, like when when um. And uh, uh, the prayer for when um, um, let me see the uh, prophet uh, was praying for King Saul. Yes. And you know there was the time when the Lord said, you know, get up from that, you know, finish, you know, and and go and anoint David. Right. Right. Yeah. When I'm praying, I mean, I mean, are there enemies that you just say, "Hey, this is this isn't working." These folks, they know about God, but that, that is not what they choose. They choose to be against God instead of for They for themselves. Well, let me read a passage for you. It's in First John, the second chapter, verse three. We know that we've come to know Him, that is Jesus, if we obey His commands. The, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In other words, he is an enemy of God. So do we pray for those also, or are those wasted prayers and we should concern no. ourselves also? I, I pray for the city of Washington, D.C., because God has laid it on my heart to cry out for this city and to love this city. But it's filled with the enemies of God. But I pray for him. I pray for our president. Yeah. I pray for I pray for our government leaders. And I'll continue until Jesus says, Don't ask me anymore. I pronounce judgment and it's finished. It's it's coming. There's not anything you can do to pray. I will not turn aside. Okay. See, I just thought that, you know, those folks like that run the country, some of those don't even know what they're doing. But those guys that, that come to church on a regular basis or actually run in a church, they, they have made a decision. It isn't like they don't know what they're doing. They just don't, you know, they want to go their own way. It's different from somebody who's completely in the dark. Is, yes. is there a difference? But, Warren, what I find is that People in the church who continue to walk in rebellion and sin actually actually believe that they're still saved and they've been taught a lie and they don't understand that they have to turn from their sin. They believe in a sentimental Jesus. They've never met the real Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's right. And we have to meet the real Jesus, the righteous, holy God of heaven who is the creator God. Yes. Until, yes. until. Yes. 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 Until we yes. meet that God, how will we ever repent of our sin? Yes. And many in the church have no idea that their words and their sentimentality aren't going to save them. Yes. Because they're unclean before God. 
breaks my heart. Yeah. Okay, I understand. Seems like you piled a whole bunch of more prayers on me. Yes. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to spend time and energy than talking with Jesus. Yes, yes. Because if his hand doesn't move for this nation, we're finished. We're on a downward spiral. And if he doesn't intervene, we're going to kill ourselves. We're going to tear ourselves to bits. And many will be lost in bitterness and violence. And I'm saying, Lord, spare us. Spare spare this nation. We need another great awakening. And I'm standing by faith that it's on its way. Okay. Warren, good to hear. I want to stand that way also. Thank you. Good to talk to you, my brother. Thank you. God bless you, sir. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Where's your heart today? And is this message regarding... Your words and your actions, has that rung true in your heart? Do you see a divergence in your heart between what you say and what you do? Do you see that difference? And do you recognize that sin exists in two ways in our hearts? The guilt and the burden of sin but also the pollution of sin. We have to be forgiven, and then we have to be washed and made clean. And our words and our actions have to come into full agreement with no difference between them. We can't say, I love Jesus, and then go to the violent movie. We can't say, I love Jesus, and lust after the professional sports of our day. We can't do that and be saved. Jesus said, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Not the man who says the will of God, but the man who does the will of God. My brother, my sister, God bless you today. Take time. Get on your face before Jesus. Get right with Him. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Joy will